the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us. The is today. I know it's two days before Thanksgiving, 23rd of November at B, and at 5 after 5 o'clock on your clock, Craig Roberts on your radio saying good afternoon. Good to have you with us today. Got a got a pretty jam-packed program with you, or for you tonight, with you and for you. Uh, coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk a bit about this horrific situation that has unfolded in uh, Wisconsin. The latest word is that a sixth victim has now died. 46 injured Six deaths. And the guy has a rap sheet longer than your arm. And I know there's a lot of debate about, well, they put the bail too low. I think the bigger question we ought to be posing is, why did they give him bail? Given the fact that he had just skipped bail on a previous court date related to another act of violence. We've gone through this cycle of, we'll be soft on crime, let's get hard on crime. No, we were too hard on crime, let's go soft on crime. And now the cycle repeats itself. Constitutional expert Bob Zadek is going to join us for a conversation coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. And I'll um, remind you, if you haven't given to support... Our partnership with the Bay Area Rescue Mission to provide Thanksgiving meals for needy families this Thanksgiving. There's still time. You can go online to kfax.com and click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. There is still time left to get in on that um, special one-for-one matching grant, meaning every dollar you donate will be matched for a dollar. Meals are $2 per person, and so if you gave 10 bucks. Because of the matching grant, 10 people will enjoy a Thanksgiving meal. So go online to kfax.com and click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage, and I'll thank you for it. Speaking of Thanksgiving, for some people it's going to be an exciting time, getting together, family and friends gathering around the table, thinking of all that we're appreciative of, good friends, jobs, health good meal for some families though there's not going to be a lot to look forward to this year there's going to be that proverbial empty seat at the table and certainly in the wake of the impact of COVID-19 my goodness three quarters of a million Americans have died from this we were told it was just the flu yeah I don't think so how do you cope with loss during the holidays 
And if you're someone who eagerly looked forward to this time of year, suddenly there's this wet blanket hanging above it because someone in your life will not be there this Thanksgiving or this Christmas. Let's talk about how to cope with grief during the holidays. Fred Colby joins us. Fred is a grief group facilitator, author of the bestseller Widower to Widower, Surviving the End of Your Most Important Relationship, published by Front Range Press. And Fred, thanks so much for taking time to be with us. I I know a lot of folks really look forward to this time of year, an opportunity to pause for a moment before the the holidays in in madness and earnest (laughs) begin. And yet for a lot of folks, maybe a little bit of the joy of the holiday season has been um, rubbed off, has become tarnished because there's someone in their life that will not be at the Thanksgiving table this year. And Coping with this um, is a difficult time, and some people, I think, kind of feel like they're they're compelled to try to have that happy face, and yet they're maybe not feeling very happy. Right, right. Thank you for inviting me, Craig. It's an important topic this time of year. Uh, so many of us are affected differently when we have a loss like this. Some may just shut down and not react at all. Others can be in tears every day, all day, it seems like. So it's we have to recognize as we enter these times that if we have a family, friends getting together, each of us may react differently to the loss of an important loved one in the group. And so we have to accept that, that we each be allowed to process the grief in our own way and not be forced to toe the line of doing it the way you do it, because it's not going to be the same. Um, If you're the husband of the wife that you lost, you are just going to be destroyed. You're going to be in shock. You're going to have very difficult time coming out of the numbness that you're experiencing. But if you're you know, three family members removed from that woman that was lost, your reaction may be very different. So understand the one that's closest to the person that was lost may be suffering a lot differently than you are and allow them the space to process that grief. And and we really need to kind of, in a sense, and I want to choose my words wisely here, Fred, because I know that there's, there's plenty of solid counsel out there in terms of helping people process the grief and 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 address the reality of the loss and the pain maybe the anger moments of denial all of that uh, you know broad variety of emotions that surround losing a loved one and yet nevertheless still having to at some level acknowledge that while their life may be over yours continues on but it's different for everybody and i'm glad that you point that out because some folks say i'm i'm struggling with figuring out how to manage my way through the grieving process and i guess maybe the most important thing that we need to acknowledge for ourselves and for others is that there's no one size fits all there's no magic formula what seems to work for one person may entirely be a failure for somebody else and even periods of time you know is is the grieving period is the mourning period six weeks six months six years i guess the answer really is it all depends it all depends uh for some folks they can seem to move on after three to six months for others three or five years. I mean, I've talked to people at every place along the spectrum, and they're all suffering just as badly when they're in the deep grief, but they also, when they come out of it, it's a gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. And 
for example, I have a group uh, that just met this week, and it's all widowers. And almost to a man, they said that the second Thanksgiving was much worse than the first. And the reason is that first one, they were numb, they were in a state of shock, and they just were kind of, you know, walking through a surreal version of their life. But the second one, when they had started getting their feet on the ground, started feeling more solid, and if they were getting better, they are shocked when the grief hits them full blast. And this time, they really experience it. I mean, I had a meltdown. I had to go hide in the uh, master bedroom closet and get down on my knees and cry uh, for a holiday dinner because I just had to let it out. After five or ten minutes, I was able to rejoin the group because I had allowed myself to process the grief. Is it important going into this conversation, Fred, that we acknowledge that there may be, and again, perhaps the 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 not best choice of words here, but there might be moments uh, when you feel as if you're 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 somehow backsliding or or regressing, meaning you thought yeah. that you were over it, you thought you've processed all of this, you've dealt with the grief, you've had the crying jags, and now you're you right. know you're you're moving forward with life, and suddenly, and it can be a simple reminder. It, right. it, it can be the most minor of things that come without warning, and all of a sudden, boom, it's almost as if you're hit with a wave of grief that washes over you. Yes. And some say, well, wait a minute, I, I thought I dealt with all of this. What's happening to me? Is this normal? <laughs> it's perfectly normal. And what you're talking about is triggers, what we call grief triggers. So in anniversaries, holidays, birthdays, they're the major triggers. Uh, you have to recognize when they're coming up and sort of prepare for them. Uh, allow your some t- yourself some time alone to remember, to honor, and to love the one that you lost. Know that these triggers can be totally unexpected. So, like, you may come across a photo of your spouse, and you're just taken right back to that moment when she passed. You might have an old friend call up and say, hey, how's Teresa doing? Not knowing that she passed half a year ago because they haven't talked to you for a long time. And for me, the biggest trigger was songs. So, for example, the Over the Rainbow song by the uh, Hawaiian fellow who sang it so well. Um, every time that came on the radio, oh, my God, I just melt right there. And then the hymns. Hymns are a classic example. I went to church, back to church after a few months, and the very first service I went to, they sang the old hymns my wife and I loved. I was just standing in church sobbing. I mean, they just come out of the blue. But what you do learn over time is not to run from it, but to face it, confront it, and then just, I would just sit down on the stairs and just allow the grief to wash over me because I knew it was my way of honoring, remembering, and loving my wife. And I think that's such an important point that you make, Fred, that we we sometimes, I think falsely so, think that we're going to reach some level where the the grief sort of plateaus and now we're, we're getting back to some sense of routine that somehow we're going to reach a point where we'll never feel moments of grief again, that this will all be behind us. And maybe we need to be quickened and remembering that those memories and, and that acknowledgement of that loss also acknowledges what that person meant to you in your life 
And I think that those moments can actually, instead of being something that we run from, that we should run toward. I I give you a quick example. I I had a case, my grandmother and I, there were a couple of types of TV programs that we both uh, loved very much in common. And we had the habit of whoever would catch this program, usually on the local PBS station, would call the other and say, hey, so-and-so is performing on TV tonight. You got to, I just saw the promo. Be sure to tune in. So one evening, this ad comes on that this particular performer was going to be on television. And as I was engrossed in listening to the promo, I got up almost automatically from my seat. I walked over to the telephone. I picked it up. I dialed the number. I held the receiver to my ear as I was continuing to watch TV. And I heard the phone ring once and then twice, and then three times. And I looked at the clock, and I thought to myself, it's 7.30 on a Saturday night. Where could she be? Oh, God. And suddenly it hit me that 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 habit was so ingrained in me over the years that in that nanosecond, I completely forgot (laughs) until I remembered. And I have to admit, yeah, yeah, I I had a little bit of a crying jag. But you know what? I, I, I carry that with me to this day because now when I see those programs come on television, I always remember what we shared in common. And does right. it sometimes hurt a little bit, sting a little bit? Absolutely. But it also right. helps me remember. And I think that maybe it's not that you grieve, but how you respond to the grief that makes all the difference. Right. Do you think that's true? I do. The worst thing you can do is hide from your grief. So I know people who've tried and been successful for six months or a year or even two years. And generally what happens, it comes back and hits them really hard. And the problem is, if you don't process your grief in the first year or two, all those people that love you and support you who were there for you that first year or so, are not going to understand when you suddenly fall apart in the second, third, or fourth year. So go ahead and confront it and deal with it. Because it's, what would you rather have? The pain of having to remember and love somebody who's gone or to never have had that person in your life? Yeah, and I, and I think you just answered your own question. With us today is Fred Colby. We're talking about how to cope with loss and grief during the holidays. And, and while this is appropriate for any of us that have lost loved ones, especially so if this is going to be that first year and you're looking to Thursday with not a sense of joy and excitement, but rather fear and trepidation, you need to know that that's okay. And you need to know that over time, it does get better. And you need to know that over time, those memories continue to be there. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a very good thing. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our dialogue as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Some folks during the holiday season in particular want to kind of check out, run from the holidays, because it tends to bring up too many memories, and that's a difficult thing for them to manage. Uh, My take on this, and I'd like to get Fred Colby's insights, is that rather than running from, I have tended to run toward recognizing how much, uh, with some of these loved ones in particular, the holidays meant to them, that I've now embraced the holiday season as a way of honoring them. 
And uh, Fred Colby, again, a grief group facilitator, author of Widower to Widower, Surviving the End of Her Most Important Relationship, again, published by Front Range Press. Uh, Fred, what about that notion of, of, of instead of fleeing from this, embracing aspects of it as a means of showing honor to that loved one yeah. for whom the holidays meant so much? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I 100% agree. Uh, you'll see throughout my book and my blogs a theme of, of confronting your grief and addressing it, forcing yourself to get out there and be active and supportive of your community and your friends and family and making new friends, all these different ways of honoring the one you love by continuing on doing the good work that you did together, hopefully, and bringing that to a broader population. Um, I look at Thanksgiving, for example, as a time uh, to give thanks. So what, expressing gratitude for your loved one and having to have them in your life for so long. It's a time of forgiveness. Let go of the guilt and self-condemnation that you have because maybe you feel you didn't recognize the illness soon enough or you didn't do enough for them. it's time for reconnecting to your family and your friends because often we kind of get separated from everybody and isolated during our grieving stage and it's a time for celebrating the life of your loved one and it's a time for loving again so use that to your advantage and let's face it the one that you lost they would want you to be happy they would want you to be with your family and friends we have to be cautious not to get caught up, I think, in the, as you're suggesting, the woulda, coulda, shoulda uh, cycle. But the other thing, too, I'm wondering is we, we delineated earlier that we tend to need to work this out for ourselves, meaning that this process and how we, we, we deal with grief is unique to every individual. Uh, how do we go, though, in that process about the business of avoiding the trap of using unhealthy crutches? To get through it. And by that, I mean, well, you're cooking for Thanksgiving, you know, open up a bottle of this or that, and suddenly you're reliant upon uh, coping mechanisms that, in fact, are not healthy. Yeah, I run into this all the time. You can imagine the number of uh, widowers who contact me and share their stories with me. And I won't say it's always true, but it's very frequently true that when somebody is still in the very deep grieving stage, still after a year, two years, I've run into some still there after five years, there's often drugs or alcohol involved. It's very easy when you're in this deep grief just sit on the stairs and wallow in your grief. And I'll be honest with you, during the first three to six months, you need some of that. It, it's kind of healthy for you in a way. But when you continue to do it after six months or a year and just wallowing in the grief, you have that third glass of wine, that third beer, smoke a joint, whatever it may be, and you just stay at that plateau. It's kind of like if you've dealt with alcoholics and so on before, you often notice that even though they're 30, 40, 50 years old, they're still like a teenager. They never progress. They're still regressed back to their same behavior, same attitude, same everything. And they haven't been able to mature and grow up and take responsibility for themselves. Well, it's true with grieving, too. Where is the point that an individual needs to say, you know what, this is more than what I can handle on my own. 
And I think you need to give yourself permission to be able to admit that, that 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 doesn't make you a weak person. That doesn't mean that you are incapable of dealing with it. It just means, like all of us, you need a little extra help. When when does it reach that trigger point that you need to say, I think this is bigger than what I can handle on my own and and to be essentially, (laughs) as you alluded to, adult enough to reach out and say, I need some help. Right. And men especially have difficulty with this. Let's face it. We're not good at asking for directions. and We're not good at asking for help. So this is a new behavior that we have to learn when all of a sudden we're on our own. And that's true. Anybody who's lost a loved one that they depended upon in so many aspects of their life. So you really do have to decide that you are going to be willing to, for example, call your friends. I would call my friends and say, hey, I need support. Would you be willing to meet me for coffee? Have a glass of wine after the end of the day, that kind of thing. And an amazing number of them stepped up to the plate and supported me and, and would call me first instead of me having to call them. But you have to be willing to um, also be willing to call for a grief therapist. And I say grief therapist, not a regular therapist, because regular therapists are not dealing with all the issues, particularly that men have in the grieving stage after the loss of a spouse. So I went to one, and most of the widowers that I know who have been successful at getting through this have also gone to grief therapy. And that is often offered at the hospices in your area, often at no charge. And I think it's important to recognize, too, that that manning up uh, or showing that you've got that stick to itiveness is is not necessarily something that you should celebrate if if it is a coping mechanism that in reality creates a greater circle of avoidance than addressing these matters head on. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry at God. It's okay to be angry at your spouse. Why did you leave me? I think dealing with some of those issues and, and confronting the way you're feeling is uh, is critically important. And if you reach the point where it's more than what you can handle, that's okay. And getting a little help along the way, that's very healthy. More insights on dealing with this issue as we go into the holidays in particular. Fred Colby's book, Widower to Widower, Surviving the End of Your Most Important Relationship. Again, published by Front Range Press. Information available on the web at Fred Colby, C-O-L-B-Y, fredcolby.com. And Fred, we appreciate the time. God bless you and happy Thanksgiving to you. 531 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The individual allegedly involved in the deadly Christmas parade incident in Wisconsin turns out to have, surprise, surprise, a lengthy rap sheet. 39-year-old Daryl Brooks charged now three times in less than two years with charges that include recklessly endangering the lives of others. Brooks, who posted $1,000 bond after skipping out on a previous bond issue of $500, was released from jail on Friday. He is being questioned by police now for the tragedy that's left the latest death count. Six dead, 46 others injured in the Milwaukee suburb of Waukesha. 
this raises questions, and I don't know, as we've heard much of the dialogue recently on uh, TV in the last uh, 24, 48 hours, that this is about um, bail levels as much as whether or not he ought to have been out on bail in the first place. To talk about some of the constitutional angles related to this case, we're joined by a constitutional expert and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, can be heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sundays at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., The Answer, and uh, lots of great details about Bob's work online at his website, bobzadek.com. Bob, as always, a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Craig. It's always a pleasure. I know that there's been a lot of debate in recent years about the issue of bail, bond levels, whether or not they've been ridiculously high. That essentially means uh, rich folks can afford them and poor folks can't, and therefore they wind up spending time in jail before they've even been accused um, or, or formally charged, perhaps, of committing a crime. And yet I wonder if this is less about bail levels and the broader question of maybe why this man was even considered to be eligible for bail given his violent criminal past. Well, even, you know, your question, Craig, um, in, involuntarily and um, unintentionally raises the core question, the very core question, which we have to start with, which is what do we understand to be the purpose of bail. Let's understand uh, what, let's see what we know about bail. Somebody is accused of committing a crime, but not yet convicted. There's been no trial, nothing like that. Only he's been accused. Uh, the police have taken the first step because they have concluded there is a likelihood he committed a crime. Legally, he is in no different status than you and I. And he didn't, he has yet, not yet been found by a court of law to have done anything wrong. A policeman thinks he did something wrong. Now, of course, I'm simplifying it. Uh, law enforcement may have seen him do it. So they're sort of, the policeman knows he did it. Uh, those he did a certain act as to whether or not the act was criminal take uh, killing in self-defense. The policeman knows that uh, somebody, A, killed B, but doesn't know all of the legal circumstances to know if the killing was a crime or not. That's for a court. So we know somebody did something. We do not know if what that person did constituted a crime. So then, since he's not yet been convicted, there's been nothing other than his, he was seen to have done something. How do you justify putting that person whose legal status is the same as you and I, how do you justify putting him in jail until he gets his day in court? It kind of seems unfair to me. So what is the very purpose of bail? Well, the purpose of bail, and it has a very long history, goes it predates the Magna Carta at 1215. The history of bail, a very interesting history, goes back, as I said, 10 centuries. But the history was uh, 
in medieval times when somebody was suspected of having committed a crime and was entitled to a trial in medieval England, well, there weren't judges around the corner. It could have taken, it might take six months or longer for a judge to reach this medieval English community to have the trial. Well, it was felt it's not fair to have this suspect wait in jail for six or eight months until the judge got there. So he was released. But if they release him, how do they know he's going to show up? Well, so then the practice evolved that you would have, historically, another member of the community to vouch for them and to say, I, who didn't commit a crime, I vouch for him. And if he doesn't show up, I will pay money, pay the damage that he is alleged to have caused. Well, that evolved into the payment of money to ensure that a suspect will show up in in court. Therefore, the bail or or the bail uh, is only to assure somebody's going to show up. So for us to say, well, how could he have been released? He was a danger. Well, you can't put somebody in jail because he's believed to be a danger. It's, in, it's unfair and insufficient. Now, over time, the concept of putting somebody in jail pending a trial uh, to make sure he, show, he or she shows up, that evolved to putting him in jail where the government has determined that its interest or society's interest in keeping him in jail is greater than his right to be free, a very high bar, and therefore it evolved to something a little bit less than to make sure the alleged perpetrator shows up, to be sometimes if he is found to be a serious threat to society, then he can be locked up. But remember, he hasn't been found by a a trial to be a threat to society, it's just a judge or law enforcement or the judicial system feels, based upon whatever evidence is presented, that he's a threat. A very subjective standard. And Um, and this is really where it gets extremely complicated, and and I want to be clear to delineate this for listeners, that while on the surface at first glance it seems as if well there's a history of violence here and he was recently uh, arrested uh, for an allegation of more violence and recently skipped out on bail at five hundred dollars and so given the history etc etc doesn't it seem to make sense that the judge should have said no way are we letting you out on bail you're going to have to sit on ice until your day in court comes what becomes complicated and problematic with that approach is a little thing called the Fifth Amendment, which in short order says that we may not be deprived of, quote, life, liberty, or property without due process. So what is due process? Your day in court. 
Evidence against you is presented, an opportunity for defense is then afforded you, and then a judge or a jury hands down a decision, guilty or innocent. And if guilty, what's the punishment? (coughs) It gets very complicated. So the issue of, well, just throw him in jail and leave him there pending trial, not as easy as it seems. We're going to dive a bit deeper into this. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He is one of the premier constitutional experts on radio today. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and hosts the Bob Zadek Show. Heard locally in the San Francisco Bay region every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. You can get details about Bob's books, his guests, podcasts, and other resources by going to his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Big push now to ask for more bail reform. But the bail was just recently reformed. So was that a premature act? And what of the complexities related to honoring the letter and the intent of the Fifth Amendment? We'll discuss that with Bob Zedek as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the rush to judgment related to recent discussions that bail seemed to be artificially high and therefore a barrier uniquely for people that did not have the resources. If you're a multimillionaire and you are accused of committing a crime and a judge sets bail at $10,000, $20,000, you whip out the checkbook, you write a check, you're done. If you're somebody that is of less means and they hand you a ten dollars or $20,000 or higher bond level, you're probably not going to be able to make it, or you're going to have to go to all your friends and family and, and, you know, hawk the family jewels, as they say, in order to come up with the money. So regard it as almost a barrier for those less privileged to, um, to be released from jail. There have been attempts to try and reduce bail levels. Some are saying, well, that was a big mistake. But let's get to the heart of this matter with talk show host, author, and constitutional expert Bob Zadek. And that is this little thing, Bob, called the Fifth Amendment that essentially says you can't be deprived. You can't be better put or put in other ways. They can't just stick you in jail for no good reason until you have been actually allowed your day in court. The process has gone through and a judge or jury has laid down the hammer and said, that's it, we find you guilty. Absent that, the notion of just saying, well, you've been accused of the crime, we think there's a problem here, lock them up until they, they get their day in court, becomes a little problematic because of the Fifth Amendment. It does, except for the fact that for eight centuries before the Constitution was drafted, it was accepted English law that uh, it was appropriate, notwithstanding. Uh, now, due process wasn't invented in the United States in 1787. It existed in English law for centuries before that. Um, back to the Magna Carta, I believe. So it, it doesn't, it, it's established law that it was felt that taking steps, society taking steps to make sure an accused criminal who is found to be a flight risk to make sure that that accused criminal shows up in court, it was felt 
that it is appropriate to take some steps to make sure that person shows up. And remember, historically, it was another member of the community vouching for that person. That evolved into bail over time. And so that is, it's accepted that bail, so long as it's reasonable, everything is reasonable, but the concept of bail is accepted that you have to, to assure you're going to show up, having been concluded you're a flight risk, that you have to be locked up or otherwise give us assurance you're going to show up. So the issue of can you put somebody in jail pending trial who is found to be a flight risk, that's crucial, that's accepted as not violative of due process. But there is another issue, a really great, what I find to be intellectually, a very difficult issue. I struggle with it, and you kind of hinted at it before we went to break. Uh, you use the phrase, um, a threat to society. Um, should we release that person? And I have told you it is accepted that uh, for judges to consider not only the flight risk, but is releasing this individual who is simply accused of having committed a crime, is it acceptable for the court to deny bail or set bail unreasonably high, the same thing, um, because this individual is not necessarily a flight risk, but rather this individual, this accused, is a threat to society. Now, I struggle with that second concept, which you hinted at before the break. Here's why. Let's take an individual who has a history of he served time in prison on four or five different occasions for various violent crimes. That individual now is released from prison having served her time for four violent crimes. That in, now, is that individual walking the streets having committed four violent crimes still a threat to society? I suspect the answer is yes. That individual didn't get cured of whatever propensities she had to be violent. She just paid her dues to society, as they say, by being in prison. So that individual walking the streets is more of a threat to society than you and I are. But yet we don't lock them up because they're a threat. Now, so now that same individual who is just let out of prison for a violent crime, served her time, she now is accused, not convicted, accused of committing yet another violent crime. Should that individual be denied bail because she is a threat to society? Well, that's no different than locking her up before she allegedly committed the crime simply because she's a threat. Craig, I have really big problems with that, although I don't have a solution. And I worry about that because being perceived to be a threat to society, but not having been found to having done anything wrong, being a threat to society, to me, is not a basis to lock somebody up. 
or well, is it? And and, and what and makes this very question. and I think Bob, what makes this particularly problematic is because it it is difficult to come up with a set of rules or guidelines that a judge would use. This really comes down to a matter of individual character judgment. And what might seem acceptable by one might not be by another. And suddenly we have a a slide rule um, being used to determine who is deprived of liberty awaiting trial and who is not. That's problematic. And I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should be soft on crime, but we also need to be very careful here um, in, in honoring both the spirit and letter of the Fifth Amendment that you should not be deprived, uh, essentially punished for a crime that you have not been convicted of. There's very good reasons for that. What's challenging here is, you know, we, we've used bail as a means of, of depriving somebody of liberty, which, as Bob Zadek points out, is, is a complete um, uh, misappropriation of the reason why bail exists. I mean, bail is to make sure you've got skin in the game, that when your day in court comes, you'll be seated at that defense table. That's the sum total of why bail is there in the first place. We have instead used it as a means of determining whether or not somebody is going to be allowed out on their own reconnaissance, um, a pending trial. How do we go about determining the viability of depriving somebody of their freedom based on not only the current accusation, but past accusations? And I think what, Bob, this this makes it even more difficult is that if we say that there's no double jeopardy, if we say that once you have done your time, you should be a free person, and yet we kind of want to hold a, a how should I say, hold, hold this knife over someone's head, stating that, but if you happen to make that mistake twice, you could wind up being deprived of your liberty even before you've gone to trial. How do we manage that? It's, Craig, it is so difficult, and I, I am playing with, I am playing with just as a thought game, uh, the following: instead of rec- instead of putting this person in jail if they're a flight risk, what would happen? And this is not a this is not a complete thought, Jake. It's as I said, it's a mind game. What if you release the person without requiring bail, but only if somebody else will vouch for that 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 person will show up? for throw up for trial now and the penalty for the person who's vouching is that person if the perpetrator doesn't show up and there would be a trial in absentia i don't know how we do that but let's just talk about it for a second if the person who is now fleeing is convicted then the one who vouches for that person does the time. Now, um, that gets rid of the money part of it, and now it's a question of the voucher takes the risk. If nobody will vouch for you, well, then you're in jail. But you're not in jail because you can't raise bail because you're poor. You're in jail because nobody trusts you. That's a That, to me just strikes me as being 
more fair. Now, I don't know where I go with that. It's a, This is a radio show where we're allowed to have opinions, and I had that opinion that I'm sort of playing with and trying to find a way to get uh, being poor out of the equation. And I think this is a conversation that we as Americans need to be having, because clearly... Um, based on just the the superficial facts in this case, uh, the fact that this man was back on the street again, uh, given his history and the propensity for violence, uh, gave him an opportunity to commit more violence. Now, is the answer more severe penalties that if we take away from the judge the ability to make individual decisions and stay as we essentially did here in california with the three strikes your outlaw following uh richard allen davis and his his murderer polly class that you know do, do the error once you get x penalty do it twice you get this penalty do it three times and we're done with you uh, we've tried that and it's worked to varying degrees but i think it's an important question that we as americans need to have because we need to show honor to the fifth amendment while at the same token, weigh the questions. Is, is the constitutional protections here serve a greater good for society than the potentiality of risk for society should someone be released and be afforded the opportunity to therefore commit yet another crime? Interesting points to ponder. No easy answers, to be sure. We're going to continue this uh, dialogue moving forward. We invite you to continue this dialogue and others every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock on Bob Zadek's radio program where he grapples with these and many other issues of the day with newsmakers and opinion shapers. Again, that's the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. More information and resources available on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Robert, thanks for the time. And a happy Thanksgiving to you and to your spouse, Anne. We're at 6.02. Let's get you caught up on some traffic here. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.